0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's secondhandbookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Hello, everybody. I'm Sarah. Welcome back to The Circle Opens, and thank you for joining me this week on our journey through The Stand. It is October 10th. If you have been anywhere near social media this week, you will have seen that CBS All Access has dropped a full-length trailer for The Stand airing on December 17th. The trailer aired during the NYCC panel that aired yesterday on the 9th. I was lucky enough to have the time to sit down and watch the panel when it aired. And I came away from watching this panel with the thought that these actors really knew what they were talking about. They understood their characters quite well. I was really impressed with their um, insight into who their characters were, their motivations, Especially Whoopi Goldberg seems to really understand Mother Abigail, which makes me excited to see what she brings to the character. It was also great being able to chat with a lot of fans during the panel. You guys were awesome. It was so much fun talking about the series and the stand with you as the panel was going. I will be posting the panel on TheCircleOpens.com later today, the 10th, along with a more in-depth analysis of the full-length trailer It was a little bit easier to look at and analyze a two-minute trailer than a 30-second promo. (laughs) So keep an eye out for that. If you guys want to check out thecircleopens.com a little bit later, hopefully uh, Saturday will cooperate with me and I'll get it done without too many real-life distractions. And I have to say real quick that I did enjoy the trailer. I think it looks really good. I think I was able to kind of point out a few of the scenes that we didn't get in the 94 miniseries. So I'm really excited to see Josh Boone's take on this novel. Basically, I would love to hear what you guys think about the trailer. I want to know um, what your expectations are. If you even have any, (laughs) you can email me at thecirclecloses at gmail.com or just find me on Twitter or Instagram at thecircleopens or thecircleopens.com. With that being said, I think it's time to get back to the book because we are hitting on chapter 74. But first, let's do a quick recap of last week's chapter 73. While Kojak has stayed behind to help Stu, Larry, Ralph, and Glenn finally make contact with Flag's men. They are arrested and taken to Las Vegas County Jail, separated in different cells in different wings. Flag and Lloyd confront Glenn and tell him that he can leave if he gets down on his knees and begs. Glenn begins to laugh at Flag, diminishing his power of intimidation and fear. Furious, Flag makes Lloyd shoot Glenn, who forgives Lloyd by telling him that he didn't know any better. The next morning, Larry and Ralph are taken to the MGM Grand, where two cages are erected. There is a crowd there to witness their torture and dismemberment by Flagg's hand. As Flagg begins to read Larry and Ralph's many transgressions, Whitney Horgan interrupts and tries to appeal to the survivors that this is not how Americans act, that they should stop this. Flagg silences Whitney with a ball of blue fire, killing him. Before he can continue, Trashcan Man arrives, Dying of radiation poisoning and with a nuclear warhead on the back of his electric cart. This ends the people of Vegas screaming in various directions. Flag becomes afraid and begs Lloyd to make Trash take it away. But the blue fire forms into a hand, Ralph calls it the hand of God, and the fire ignites the bomb, destroying everything and everyone in Las Vegas. In chapter 74, The Aftermath, It opens with Stu waking up from some not-so-great sleep. He's shivering, even with Kojak crawled up beside him, and Stu is running a fever. He tells Kojak that he's sick, and of course, Kojak fetches a piece of wood for him. Stu says sick, not stick, but that will do. He builds a fire, and it was the final irony. He had the flu, or something very like it. He had come down with it two days after Glenn, Larry, and Ralph left him. For another two days, the flu had seemed to consider was he worth taking. Apparently, he was, as little by little, he was getting worse. This morning, he felt very bad indeed. Aware of where this fever might leave him, Stu pulls out a stub of pencil from his pocket along with his notebook. The free zone organizational stuff that had once seemed vital was now mildly foolish. With his things is a key ring. On the key ring was a key to his apartment in Arnett, 31 Thompson Street. There was also a spare key for his car, a 1977 Dodge with a lot of rust that was still parked behind the apartment building in Arnett. Also attached to the key ring was a cardboard address card that held his information. He takes the keys off the ring and tosses them, as he'll never need them again, and he uses a blank page from his notebook. He writes Dear Franny at the top. He tells her about what happened up until he broke his leg. He tells her that he hopes to see her again, but he doubts it's in the cards. The best they can hope for is that Kojak could find the free zone again and deliver the message to her. He writes that he loves her. He says, I expect you to mourn me and then get on. You and the baby have to get on. That's the most important thing now. He folds the notebook paper and slips it into the slot of his address card and attaches the key ring to Kojak's collar. He asks Kojak if he wants to find a rabbit or something, and Kojak goes bounding up the slope where Stu had fallen and broken his leg. Stu watches him with a mixture of bitterness and amusement. He has a 7-Up can that is filled with muddy water from the ditch. If the water stood still long enough, the mud slides down to the bottom. It makes for a gritty drink, but as his mother would have said, it was a whole lot grittier when there was none. Life sure is a bitch, he says to himself before laughing. For a moment or two, he lets his fingers fret at the swelling high on his neck, just under his jaw. Then he laid back, splinted leg in front of him, and dozed. About an hour later, he wakes to feel the ground moving under his hands. Is it an earthquake? For a moment, he thinks it's the delirium from the fever, but then he sees the dirt sliding down the gully. There's a faint, dull thudding sound, and it seems to push its way into his ears. A moment later, he's heaving for breath, as if most of the air had been pushed out of the gully that the flash flood had caused. Kojak is above him, whining, staring west toward Nevada. Stu calls for him in a panic, and Kojak comes down the slope and joins him, though he's still whining and he's trembling. Stu realizes that he needs to see what happened. He has to. So he starts his trek towards the eastern edge of the gully. It's a little steeper, but there are more handholds. He really hadn't seen the point of trying to climb up there three days ago, but now he had to get up there. He had to see. It takes about two hours just to get within six feet of the top of the gully. He's burning up from the fever. His leg is in pain. But then he notices that Kojak is panting as well. So it's not just the fever from his illness. It's the heat around them. Overhead, a squadron of birds suddenly flocked, wheeling aimlessly and squawking. They feel it too. Whatever it is, the birds feel it too. Eventually, Stu finds himself stuck. And underneath him, the earth was beginning to shift. He slipped an inch, trying to grab for purchase with his hands, his broken leg thudding heavily as he had not thought to bring Glenn's pills with him. He starts to slip some more and more until he calls out miserably for Kojak. Of course, Kojak responds, and Stu is able to put his arms around the dog's neck, not really expecting to be saved, but only grabbing what was there, to be grabbed like a drowning man. And then the dog begins to move upward, digging for inches. Stu can feel Kojak's breath panting like an air compressor. When he opens his eyes, he sees they are nearly to the top of the gully. Kojak's head was down. His back legs were working furiously. He gained four more inches, and that was enough. Stu is able to let go of Kojak and grab the outcrop of the paving two fingernails peeled back like wet decals, and he cried out from the pain. But then he's able to pull himself up, and he lays on his back on the surface of I-70. Slowly, Stu sits up, and he looks west. He looked for a long time, oblivious of the heat that was still rushing against his face in warm, bloated waves. Oh my god, he said at last in a weak, breaking voice. Look at that Kojak. Larry, Glenn, they're gone. God, everything's gone. All gone. The mushroom cloud stood out on the horizon like a clenched fist on the end of a long, dusty forearm. It was swirling, fuzzy at the edges, beginning to dissipate. It was backlighted in sullen orange-red as if the sun had decided to go down in the early afternoon. The firestorm. They were all dead in Vegas. Someone had fiddled when he should have faddled and a nuclear weapon had gone off. And one hellish big one, from the look and the feel. Maybe a whole stockpile of them had gone. Glenn, Larry, Ralph, even if they hadn't reached Vegas yet. Even if they were still walking. Surely they were close enough to have been baked alive. Close beside him, Kojak whimpered unhappily. Fallout. Which way is the wind going to blow it? Did it matter? Still, Stu decides that he needs to update his note to Fran with what he had seen especially if the wind blows east it could cause them problems but they need to know now that the dark man is dead they need to know las vegas had been vaporized and the people along with it but not just yet climbing had took a lot out of him and he was tired the sight of the mushroom cloud had exhausted him even more he feels no jubilation only dull and grinding weariness as he lays down to the pavement his last thought before he sleeps is, how many megatons? But he doesn't think anyone would ever know, or want to know. When he wakes up again, it's after six o'clock. The mushroom cloud is gone, and the sky is an angry pink red, like a bright wheel of burnt flesh. He rolls into the breakdown lane to rest, exhausted all over again, because the shakes were back, and the fever. He knows his temperature is well over 100 degrees, Kojak comes out with a rabbit in his jaws and he lays it at Stu's feet, waiting to be complimented. Stu tells him he's a good dog and then realizes that Kojak has gotten used to their routine. He's waiting for Stu to tell him to fetch. So Stu does and they build another fire and split the rabbit, although Kojak gets more this time than Stu because Stu simply doesn't have the appetite. This seems to worry the dog, but it doesn't stop him from eating the rest of the rabbit. Afterward, Kojak goes back into the gully and returns with one of Stu's blankets. Stu hugs him and tells him he is some kind of dog. Kojak is thrilled to hear it. They move closer to the fire and sleep uneasily. Stu is feeling delirious and he starts calling out into the night. This does worry Kojak. He whined uneasily. The man was sick. He could smell the sickness, and mingling with that smell was a new one, a black one. It was the smell the rabbits had on them when he pounced. The smell had been on the wolf he had disemboweled under Mother Abigail's house in Hemingford home. The smell had been on the towns he had passed through on his way to Boulder and Glen Bateman. It was the smell of death. If he could have attacked it and driven it out of this man, he would have. But it was inside this man. The man drew in good air and sent out that smell of coming death and there was nothing to do but wait and see it through to the end. Kojak whined again, low, and then slept. When Stu wakes again, he understands that he's dying. He calls the dog over, takes the address card from the key ring, and updates it, telling Fran what he saw in the west. When it's dark again, Kojak brings him a gopher for dinner. They both eat, although later Stu throws it all up again, but he tells Kojak that when he dies, he wants Kojak to go back to Boulder and find Fran. Kojak wags his tail doubtfully. Stu then sleeps fitfully again, but then there is a sound in the darkness that wakes him up. Something was coming up the embankment from the washout. Kojak wakes up facing the gully and growling deep in his throat rattling pebbles and stones. Someone, something, coming up. Stu tries to sit. He thinks that it's him. He was there, but somehow he got away. Now he's here, and he means to do me before the flu can. Kojak's growling gets deeper, and his hackles are up, but then there's a familiar voice that pleases Kojak. It's a voice that recognizes the dog as well. Stu thinks it might be a trick, but Kojak is too excited, and he's jumping around the dark figure. Stu calls out who's there, and the response? The response? Well, it's Tom Cullen, that's who. My laws, yes. M-O-O-N, that spells Tom Cullen. Who's that? Stu responds and tells Tom, it's so good to see you. And then he faints. On the morning of October 2nd, Stu finally wakes up again. Tom had built a big bonfire and had wrapped Stu in his sleeping bag and blankets. Tom himself was sitting by the fire and roasting a rabbit. Kojak lay contently on the ground between the two of them. Tom had grown a beard, and he hardly looked like the man who had left Boulder for the West five weeks ago. His blue eyes were happy. Tom is very excited to see Stu. He notices that Stu had hurt his leg and goes off a bit on a tangent about when he broke his own leg. He got whipped by his daddy before he ran off with Dee Dee Tom also has fresh water, and Stu drinks it way too fast before throwing it all up again. Stu explains that he broke his leg a few weeks ago, and he explains that he's very sick with fever. He asks Tom to go look for a first aid kit in some of the abandoned cars down the road. Something with aspirin. Stu has so many questions to ask Tom, but for the moment... He can only focus on his fever. He also asks Tom to look for camping equipment, just in case. Tom agrees, but then he asks Stu, how was Nick? He says, I've been dreaming about him. In the dreams, he tells me where to go, because in the dreams, he can talk. Dreams are funny, aren't they? But when I try to talk to him, he always goes away. He's okay, isn't he? Stu tells Tom that he can't answer that right now. He just needs the aspirin first, and then they can talk. Tom agrees, although he looks fearful now, and Kojak follows Tom down the road. Later, Tom wakes up Stu with a first aid kit, where inside there are Band-Aids and a big bottle of anison. There was some camping equipment, but no tent. He did find a sleeping bag. He also found a half a dozen foil packages of freed dried concentrates. Eggs, peas, squash, dried beef. Tom agrees to go look for something to boil water in, but first he needs to know about Nick. Stu is gentle when he tells Tom that Nick is dead almost a month ago. It was a political thing. Assassination, I suppose you could say. Tom cries, but admits that he knew Nick was dead. He just didn't want to think he knew, but he did. Tom says he kept turning away, turning his back and going away. Tom says that Nick was my main man. Stu knows that, and he understands, but Tom just knows that he'll see Nick in heaven again. Tom will see him there, and he'll be able to talk, and Tom will be able to think. Tom knows that it was the dark man who killed Nick, but God fixed that bad man. Tom saw it. The hand of God came down out of the sky. Stu asks Tom what he knows about the judge, and Tom explains that the judge was shot dead in Oregon but he doesn't know what happened to Dana. They saw each other, or at least he thinks that they did. He saw Dana, but he's not entirely sure she saw him, and if she did, if she knew it was Tom, but he had not seen her since. He returns later with a pot from a U-Haul that he found down the road. Apparently someone was fleeing the superflu with all of their worldly possessions. Much good it had done them. Later that night after supper, he and Tom go to sleep, with Kojak between them. The next morning, Stu tells Tom that they need to drive. But first, they need to find a car. He needs to get some medicine, or he's going to die. Tom doesn't know how to drive a car. Stu knows that, and he knows it's going to be a chore for him, because not only is he sick, but he broke the wrong leg. Stu explains what the problems are going to be. They need to find a car that will even start. One that has some gas, and preferably an ignition key. Stu has no idea how to hotwire a car. Tom agrees because he wants to go back to Boulder, and they start making a trevoise. They make it out of the sleeping bag, and Tom is able to pretty much pull Stu down the road. Stu feels a mad sort of exultation, despite how poorly he feels. He knows that he's probably going to die somewhere, and soon, but at least it won't be in a muddy ditch. Eventually, Tom has to stop and rest because of his arms, and Stu begins to look around at some of the abandoned cars. They had easily walked six or eight miles, or I guess I should say Tom walked six or eight miles while pulling Stu behind him. Tom is still feeling good, and he eats a big lunch. Stu knows that they need to find a car soon, or it would be another two hours to get to the next hill, and then it would be dark and cold, perhaps snowing, and then he would die. They do check a few cars, but they finally find a very old Plymouth, a 1970 at best. For a wonder, it was standing on four inflated tires, but it was rust-eaten and battered. Nobody had ever bothered with much in the way of maintenance on this heap. Stu knew its sort well enough from our net. The battery would be old and probably cracked. The oil would be blacker than midnight in a mineshaft but there would be a pink fuzz runner around the steering wheel and maybe a stuffed poodle with rhinestone eyes and a knotty head on the back shelf. Stu manages to get to his feet to check under the hood. The battery was not so bad and the horn still worked. By some miracle, there were keys in the ignition and the gas gauge is a little over a quarter of a tank. It was a mystery why the car's owner had pulled over to walk when he could have driven. In his light-headed state, Stu thought of Charles Campion, almost dead, driving into Hap's pumps. Old AC had the superflu, had it bad. Final stages. He pulls over, shuts off his car's engine, not because he's thinking about it, but because it's a long ingrained habit and gets out. He's delirious, maybe hallucinating. He stumbles out into the Utah Badlands, laughing and singing and muttering and cackling and dies there. Four months later, Stu Redman and Tom Cullen happen along, and the keys are in the car, and the battery's relatively fresh, and there's gas. The hand of God. Wasn't that what Tom had said about Vegas? The hand of God came down out of the sky, and maybe God had left this battered 70 Plymouth here for them, like manna in the desert. It was a crazy idea, but no more crazy than the idea of a hundred-year-old black woman leading a bunch of refugees into the promised land. It takes a bit of effort and a lot of determination, but they finally get the car to turn over. Of course, it stalls, but they try again. And finally, the Plymouth roars to life. Kojak barks happily. Tom is excited, and Stu tells them that they've got some wheels now. Kojak barked and wagged his tail. In his previous life, the life before Captain Trips when he had been Big Steve, he had ridden often in his master's car. It was nice to be riding again with his new masters. They get the car turned east, and they're headed back to Boulder. Stu is just happy to get to Green River and put the West behind them. Just after dark, they find themselves in front of Utah Hotel. It's only three stories high, but it's warm and shelter from the cold. Stu is flickering in and out of reality. The car had seemed stuffed with people at times during the last 20 miles. Fran, Nick Andros, Norm Brewitt. He had looked over once and it had seemed that Chris Ortega, the bartender at the Indian Head, was riding shotgun. Tired. Had he ever been so tired? He tells Tom that they have to stay the night, although he calls Tom Nicky. Tom has to help him get inside. The fever is bad again, and Stu asks for a cigarette and a beer and then passes out over the steering wheel. Tom gets out and carries Stu into the hotel. The lobby was damp and dark, but there was a fireplace and a half-filled wood box beside it. Tom set Stu down on a threadbare sofa below a great stuffed moose head and then set about building a fire while Kojak padded around sniffing at things. Stu's breath came slow and raspy. He muttered occasionally, and every now and then he would scream something unintelligible, freezing Tom's blood. Tom finds his own pillow and blanket to make a bed beside Stu. Kojak lays on the other side, so they bracketed Stu with their heat. Tom is looking at the ceiling. He knows that Stu is very sick, and it worries him. When Stu woke again, Tom would ask him what he's supposed to do, what he could do about the sickness. But what if Stu didn't wake up again? Outside, the wind had picked up and went howling past the hotel. Rain lashed at the windows. By midnight, after Tom had gone to sleep, The temperature had dropped another four degrees, and the sound turned to the gritty slap of sleet. Far away to the west, the storm's outer edges were urging a vast cloud of radioactive pollution toward California, where more would die. At some time after two in the morning, Kojak raised his head and whined uneasily. Tom Cullen was getting up. His eyes were wide and blank. Kojak whined again, but Tom took no notice of him. He went to the door and let himself out into the screaming night. Kojak went to the hotel lobby window and put his paws up, looking out. He looked for some time, making low and unhappy sounds in his throat. Then he went back and laid down next to Stu again. Outside, the wind howled and screeched. So chapter 74, like a lot of his other chapters that run a bit long, this particular one has a lot of internal dialogue and a lot of motion slash action, at least before Tom shows up to help Stu. Stu is pretty much resigned to the fact that he's going to die at the bottom of the washout. He thought about climbing up to the side before, but what was the point? At least down in the washout, you know, he has safety from the wind, and he had water. I guess if you can call muddy water water, but I guess water is still water (laughs) when you need it to survive, Kojak is doing a really good job of taking care of Stu by bringing him food, firewood, but Kojak can't bring Stu medicine. All he can do is keep him warm and protect him. Stu knows that he's going to die, so he's smart enough to put a little note in the address card from his key ring to attach to Kojak's collar. If Kojak can travel from New Hampshire to Boulder to find Glenn, surely he can find his way back to Boulder to find Fran and deliver Stu's message. And then Stu wakes up to feel the ground shaking beneath him. And this is when the bomb goes off in Las Vegas. He can feel the heat from where he is. And of course, being down in the washout, he doesn't know what's happening. All he can do is see the dirt and mud coming down the gully. and All he can do is feel the ground shifting beneath him. Of course, he sees the birds above squawking and wheeling aimlessly, as it's described. So something has happened. And this is what prompts Stu to finally try and climb up out of the washout. He knows whatever happened came from the West. So he's really willing to risk his other leg, perhaps his life, to climb out of the washout to sea. Of course, he gets stuck about six feet from the top, but he's just too ill and too feverish and too weak to really make it the rest of the way. When he feels the ground starting to slip beneath him, Of course Kojak is there to help him. Kojak single-handedly drags Stu the remaining six feet to get him to the top of the washout. I think to say that Kojak is an incredible dog is probably an understatement at this point. He seems to know exactly what Stu needs without Stu really needing to say it. Or, you know, he knows that one word means bring food or fetch means to bring wood. Kojak knows that Stu needs the heat at night, so he lays beside him. I think Kojak knew that if Stu fell the rest of the way down the gully again, he would probably break his other leg, or that would just be it. That would be where Stu dies. The fact that Kojak can drag a grown man without much help, the remaining six feet to the top of that gully is nothing short of amazing. And this is where Stu sees the mushroom cloud. He is now aware of what happened in Las Vegas. He knows everybody out there is gone, vaporized, no doubt, including his friends, Ralph, Glenn, and Larry. Um, Even if they hadn't reached Vegas yet, they would be close enough to have been killed along with everybody else. And Stu knows that he needs to make sure that Boulder is aware of this, too. So he does the smart thing by updating the note to Fran. He wants them to know that the threat is over. Vegas has been vaporized, although there's still the threat of the radioactive pollution because it depends on which way the wind is blowing. And this is really like a parallel to the beginning of the novel. It circles back to the beginning when Campion is getting his wife and daughter ready to leave the army base after Captain Trips is accidentally released into the world. Campion needs to know which way the wind is blowing, because if it's blowing west, then he can drive his family east and hopefully outrun the virus. Here, Stu figures, if the wind is blowing east, then the radiation from the nuclear bomb would probably hurt or harm people in the free zone. Surely it would reach Stu eventually as well and kill him if the fever didn't. So I really enjoyed that little throwback to the beginning of the novel um, where it feels like it's coming full circle wondering which way the wind is blowing. And King's descriptions of the sky after the bomb went off, the orange and the reds, a bright wheel of burn flesh. You think about how beautiful the sky is going to look after such devastation. I would really like to see a photo painting of Stu and Kojak on I-70 with the mushroom cloud in the distance and the, you know, the color of the sky. Um, is that Morbid of me, probably, (laughs) but I think it would be a really cool painting. So Stu begins to sink into more delirium. And then finally, Tom arrives. He had been heading east, and he's obviously far enough away from Vegas not to get baked alive. With Tom there, Stu has a real chance to survive. If Tom can help Stu find aspirin, even better, if they can try to get to the medicine that Stu really needs... But Stu knows that they need to find a car and put some distance between them and Vegas to head back east. Otherwise, they're both going to die out there in the cold on the side of the road because I really can't see Tom just leaving Stu behind. Tom is very eager to help. Of course, he takes a moment to mourn um, with Stu when Stu confirms that Nick is dead. Deep down, Tom knew that, but I think he was just grasping for some kind of hope That the dreams were just dreams and that Nick was waiting for him back in Boulder. He still has those dreams where he can see Nick and talk to him. But now he understands why Nick would turn away from him when Tom would say he was excited to see Nick again. They both take a minute to think about their lost friend before Tom pushes on. He helps find some food. He helps find a first aid kit. It's easy to say, oh, how convenient that they're finding everything that they need out in the desert. But again, there are several cars out there abandoned or full of dead bodies, people fleeing from the super flu as if they had anywhere they could go. Of course, they're going to try to take things that they might need. And that's actually pretty smart to take the free dried concentrates because you don't know when you're going to get your next meal, especially if things spoil. It seems like some of these people were survivalists, but they could not run away from the flu. Stu is not doing well. Even after they manage to find a car and get it working, Stu has to drive it because Tom can't. It's really a miracle that Stu didn't pass out or wreck the car in a ditch, to be honest. But he seems to be able to hold on until they hit Green River and find a hotel in Utah. Then he just passes out. But Tom is there, and Tom is able to get Stu inside and situated. Tom knows that Stu isn't doing well, and he's hoping that Stu will tell him what he needs to make him well again. But then Tom wakes up in the middle of the night, glassy-eyed and blank, as if in a trance, and he leaves the hotel. But we don't know where he's going or why. It's really like when Kojak returned for Stu. It seemed as though something was looking out for him. Kojak is definitely a special dog, seemingly understanding what Stu needs at the smallest demand. And now Tom has found Stu as well. Tom, who is eager to help him, who has the strength to pull and carry stew when he needs to. Tom manages to not only find freeze-dried food, but a pot to boil water on. Like Stu thought to himself, the desert seemed full of miracles. And then finally finding the right kind of car. It's crappy, but it works. It has gas, the keys, a battery. It took a while to get it going, but it still has some juice in it. So maybe Tom and Stu were very lucky. Or perhaps it was the hand of God. Do you think the odds were in Stu's favor that Tom would find him? I suppose you could say if he's heading back the way he came, it seemed inevitable that their paths may cross if he stuck to I-70. But Tom found him just in time. It's not likely that Stu would have survived another night or two on his own, even with Kojak's help. I think that some higher power put everything in place that they would need to get moving, to get going back east. Maybe it was the hand of God. Maybe Nick is helping from the other side. Maybe Mother Abigail. Maybe it's a group effort. I think maybe God could have given them something a little better than a Plymouth 1917 <laughs> that's rusted, but beggars can't be choosers. It's really, I love Tom in this this chapter because he accepts Nick's death. He mourns him, but then he knows they have to move on. However, Tom needs help of his own in order to help Stu survive. He's willing to do anything Stu tells him, but if Stu is so delirious that he's not able to direct Tom, what's going to happen? So yes, Tom does need some help. And that might come from an unexpected yet expected source, as we will find out next week in Chapter 75. Thank you guys for sticking with me through this episode. I appreciate it. It was this was another chapter that was a little over thirty pages. But again, it's a lot of movement. It's a lot of finding things, getting the car, getting the car running, focusing a lot on Stu's delirium. I I'm sure he would focus and think more about what happened out West if he wasn't so feverish. And then, of course, having Tom find Stu was very important, getting them going. So I get why the chapter was a little long, but ultimately the things that happened were pretty straightforward and simple. Stu sees that the bomb had gone off. Tom finds Stu, they find a car, and now they're heading back east to Boulder. But there's still the question of whether Stu will survive his injury or not. I'm sure his leg is infected. That's why he has the fever. So we're going to have to see what happens to Stu in the next chapter or two. And that is it for this uh, episode. Of the Circle Opens. We have about three chapters to go. It's very exciting. <laughs> if you guys are enjoying the podcast, you can leave me a rating review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to everybody who's already done so. I appreciate your kind words and constructive criticism. And if you want to get a hold of me, again, you can reach me at the circlecloses at gmail.com or you can reach me online at the circleopens.com or on social media at the circleopens.com. I hope you're all staying safe and healthy. With that being said, you guys, M-O-O-N, that spells, see you next week.